Justin Bieber hanging in the store on his own and spent 10 grand and posted it on his Instagram. But Snoop, you see in the videos, don't worry, I got you like, yeah, you've given away a few stuff, but don't worry, I'll make sure this is worth it for you. Because this was our purpose, our why at Culture Kings was create magic moments for our customers, our teammates and ourselves. Let's make us. We don't hope they show up, let's fucking create them. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm really, really excited to dig into your whole story I've seen the interview you did with Davey and it was such a good interview and I'm, I'm really excited to sort of dig more into your story today. Yeah, yeah, cool. Awesome. Thank you so much, Simon. I guess we'll jump straight into it. Simon, please tell me and the audience a bit about who you are, your story, what you're currently working on. And then based on that, I'll probably start jumping in um, on things that I think the audience will find interesting. Yeah, cool. So yeah, I'm Simon Beard. I founded Culture Kings, like I'm most known for but yeah i'm just like a hustler entrepreneur kid you know never worked a job just started at the markets that was always a goal at school right to just i never want to work a job i want to be an entrepreneur my whole life i want to you know like i say the entrepreneur thing of like you live by the sword die by the sword and back yourself and yeah i started at the market straight out of school and just brought stuff off alibaba learned how to sell it got better at selling, invested a lot in courses and stuff and learned skills that was required to sell. I got a lot better. And then I sort of had this passion for streetwear. Uh, it really happened. It, it was like my mate just basically sent me a video of Nigo, uh, Nigo who started Bape in Japan. And it was... Uh, and I was just like, oh, my God, like he had the first Bugatti in Japan. He had the first Phantom. He had like the coolest house ever, the coolest thing. And it was just like, but I just love that street where I'm like, this is like, this is the shit, you know? It was like luxury brands are whack. And I always thought this and, you know, it was sort of like, like a guy wearing a Versace t-shirt, but then Crooks and Castles came along and it was like the Versace t-shirt, but with the bandana over the top. And it was like, it was just so much cooler than luxury. It was because it had like this fuck you to luxury that I, I sort of loved, but it was still like, yeah. And I sort of really passionately fell in love with streetwear. But I think what was so good is I built so much of that self-esteem in the markets of being able to sell and, you know, I, I really had it in my head of like, I could sell anything. You give me this bottle of water, I could sell it for 50 bucks, right? Like just the certainty around sales. And then once I had that passion for streetwear, I'm like, I'm going to figure this out. And I started with just a dicky short, sold it at the markets. It was just, I bought it from Walmart for like 16 bucks. They were selling them for a hundred dollars here at surf stores. And I was just like, send my mate, send them over, did a couple of you know, just did a few pairs each week and sold them and then just did more and doubled down. And yeah, and then from there, went from the markets to the first store, to the first store, you know, as we would really discipline work it on free cash flow of like, I was always the one because I'd come from that markets and understanding like the whole aspect of the business of like margins, sales, rent, and always running that calculator of a profit calculator. I like to say, which never turns off, you know, if I just go to a cafe or something, I'm always doing it like, oh, these are Sunday rates, this how much an hour, this thing, you know, like, but it's, I, I think that was such an important part is because we ran it 
and always made profit. You know, I met my wife at the time at the markets and we sort of hit it off. And then she was so good in, in being this real operational glue of it because I'd sort of have all these ideas, but she was the one that would pressure test them and, and then be a huge implanter. And yeah, we just built it slowly. One store, two stores a year, one, one store per year. We could only afford when we had the money for the fit out for the next one. And as you look back, you know, it was, it was actually quite a, people think it happened overnight. It was actually a slow ass grind. But the thing is, we never got any loans. We never got any investors. We just kept doubling down on what we could afford. And we were so disciplined which this is when I'm working with other entrepreneurs now, I'm like, you know, thinking like they can spend money when they're just turning over a few million bucks. It's like, dude, it's not even a business yet. It's just a promotion. Like until you you really get that critical mass, you've got to just keep doubling it down until, yeah. And then we got to a point, I always thought this model is going to work all around the world. Iconic stores, build the theater, the emotion, scale it with online. I always had this, what Netta Porter did to luxury fashion. I'm like, we could do that to streetwear online, but with these stores, with the full Disneyland experience that support it and fuel it back, build the brand. I was like, anyway, I thought let's, you know, I got the right advisors and stuff around. And as much as I'm a betting man and betting on myself, it was like, you know, Australian brands to crack the US, you know, there's not many that have pulled it off. There's a ton of, you know, there's a ton in the cemetery that tried and it's like, you've got to make sure you, and I was just like, if we could diversify this, take some money off the table, we, we're set for life. It's all house money then. And then it would even be more fun. So that's what we did. We sold part of it, which, you know, I could talk for three hours alone on just that sales process and how that works. I learned so fucking much in that. Um, but yeah, we sold half for 300 million, which was really good because, you know, we got that money off the table and the rest, we, we, it was part of this whole deal that we flipped into the IPO. The shares IPO'd in 21, D2C, hottest things in the world right then because of COVID and e-com and everything. We, share price went up. We were like, oh my God, you know, I was, I was calculating, uh, quite embarrassing and I tell the story I was as the share price was going up this is the the thing I learned success plants the seeds of failure just keep it's that FOMO thing you just keep thinking everything to the moon and I I was actually working this Zapier link out to play Jay-Z a Billy when the share price hit a certain amount because I'm like then I'll be technically a billionaire and it's like and I could just it was going to blast through the whole apartment like I could vision it like in the middle of the night like a billy a billy I'll just wake up like yeah <laughs> that never happened the share price anyway went up and and it it came down but just because of that whole market and interest rates and everything and and then as I sort of went through you know, this back part of the year, I was like, do you know what? I'm an entrepreneur at my core. Um, I don't like not having the control of, you know, we'd sort of always done it our way. And it's it's just this thing as an entrepreneur, like I can see stuff in my head and I just know it will work and I want to back myself to do it and to try and pull it out and put it into a PowerPoint and convince people and I don't know, and and 
talk about the same thing for ages where I'm like, I would have just pulled the trigger months ago. It's like, that's where it's the different part. I'm like, you know what? We've got this other money off the table. It's worth so much more than our stake left because of the share price. Like we're way better. I'm not doing anything really with that. I could be doing so much more in investing that myself in stuff that I know and, and working with young entrepreneurs and help scale And so I've had this sort of vision of still on the board and AKA, but I, I have this whole vision of like, I'd love to create my own fund, you know, maybe we'll take other people's money one day, but you know, I'd rather just do it for myself for now, but, but back really great companies that I believe in that have got great product and, you know, lend my experience, mentor, teach them and, and help them jump those, those sort of scales, because that's the thing I know, you know, I, I know you can, cause I've done it, you know, to hundreds of millions of dollars turnover. And yeah, that's what I sort of see my next adventure lies in building, building great brands and learning and working with you know, entrepreneurs and really keeping that entrepreneurial spirit. Cause I, I feel that in my core, that's how I, that's, I just so resonate with that's, that's my next moves. Simon, did you go straight to the markets after completing year 12? Were you sort of buying and selling things during high school? Yeah, I was always buying and selling like phones and stuff or yeah, I had this one thing going. We were selling the answers to the driver's license test because it was just a multiple choice. But I was always sort of looking for a way to to buy and sell stuff. I was just like, I love that. I, I remember that rush when I just first like bought a phone and sold it and made like $50 profit. It was just, oh my God, euphoric. Like looking at that $50 note, like I created this, you know, but it was, that was the, the drug and I always wanted to uh, do that. What do you think was like the catalyst for you to have that yearn to make money at a young age? And how do you sort of plan on sort of having your kids have that same fire? That's one of my biggest challenges to sort of overcome. But I think for me, it was this, it was the game of it. Like I loved the game. I loved the game and it's, and this is where I try and convince other people get this game. Like I see people sit there, you know, and just, you know, slap the pokies for hours. I'm like that hit they're getting out of that. You can get that out of business. Like, but rather than putting $50 into a rig thing, like I, like, that's my thing. If I'm ever at the casino, I, I never get the rush out of it. Cause I'm like, this is rigged. Like I'm not like, but, I love that betting part where you can analyze, you can take in different data, you can interpret every other people going left and you back it the other way. Like that is, that core thing is what I love. I do think when I was young, I had that, like a lot of young guys, you know, you have that hunger for money and status and, you know, always used to read the car magazines and loved cars and stuff. And, and you sort of have that real hunger that I know I, I really had, which is the thing now to, to teach my kids, obviously if they have get around stuff, that's like 
I've definitely had some of those moments where they're like, oh, they don't understand, like, like they've skipped so many levels that all those sort of levels that that we have to grind through. But I do, I do have this way and I've actually been seeking out, you know, the right coaches and mentors of high net worth individuals that have raised great kids and that have that and, and learning. You can definitely do it. You can definitely build it. But it is part of the thing is, you know, you've, you've got to, you can't, you can't give them everything because if you do that, you're giving them, you're killing their, their chance. The, the dopamine, the chase is actually where all the, the fun is. And I would hate to take that away from them. How long were you sort of doing the flea market sort of set up before you got your first store? And it's like pretty insane that you met your partner and was she like your same age and was she doing the exact same thing? Yeah, so I was actually at the markets for seven years before I got the first store. Whoa. Right? So that was like from when I was 17, right? Selling every weekend, crafting that and scaling that. So I had a lot of other businesses in the time that I would sort of start these during the week ones. They all flopped, right? But one of them that went all right was this schoolie slippers, which was the schoolies merchandise. And this was one of these ones that's like, it was more of a lifestyle business, I call it. Like I was creating it just to basically be able to go back to schoolies and have all the fun and party. Like, but I wasn't the odd one out, but I was really just the, the king of the toolies there. And it started as that, but we were coming back to do it a year. My wife just got fired from Zups. So Tani, we were seeing each other at this time. This was like 2008, you know, the car yards went to shit and she was on probation and she got, she got the ass and it was just like time. And I'm like, oh, so we were just seeing each other. We weren't like officially dating or anything. I'm like, oh, come help um, with school these slippers. It's so much fun. We'll sell them. And yeah, it was like that year, it just took off. She, because her natural ability to sort of operation and and we just exactly complemented each other of like I could drive all the sales and and get all that from the front but she was the one orchestrating making sure we didn't run out of stock making sure the money was right making sure everything was was still flowing and rolling and the rosters and everything and because it ran 24 hours and it was like oh my god it was it was magic and we crushed it we sold like 50,000 of these schoolie slippers. And it and it was this, I really learned of that critical mass of a trend and when it kicks over and crosses the chasm and then everyone needs it because it's like that FOMO of missing out. And then it was just by those last days of schoolies, the queue was like freaking bigger than any easy line today, right? To get these bloody hotel slippers with Gold Coast schoolies written on it. And it was it was amazing and we we made that money you know i've always got this story there with tani where it was like in the middle of it we'd run out of we were selling these t-shirts as well we'd run out i ran we were driving to pick up more we got there and it's like oh you got to pay for them and it was like 900 bucks or something and i'm like oh shit i've left the bum bag with all the money back at the stand i'm like oh could you just pay for this and i'll just give you the money when we get back to the store and she's like okay and does like this swallow thing like and it was like 
Oh, I could, and I just didn't think of anything. She paid it, 900 bucks. We went back, we crushed it. We sold all the slippers. And I remember the last day at the end when we packed up and I was counting all the cash and I was like playing that Jim Jones ball and song, you know, throwing it like thinking, build it. And then I'm like, oh, I've got to like pay Tony something, right? She just worked like 80 hours, you know, through the night nonstop. And I was sort of like, uh, how much do I owe you? And she was like, nothing. I did it because I just loved it. It was so fun. And I was like, oh. And then she goes, but it would be great if you could pay me back that $900. And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't even give her back the 900 And only years later did I find out that when she paid that $900, she had like $980 in a bank account. So she paid it, had $80 out, living out of home, 19 years old, no family support, no fucking backup, no job, and literally bet the fucking farm on me. And this is where I built it into our core values at Culture King, scared money, don't make no money. But giving that story of Tani of like, no one will ever beat that throw down that she did of like, you know, backing herself and she backed me. And I always say, still the greatest ROAS investment in CK history, because if you worked it out, but it is this thing is that she did that. And because even when we started working, this is where we were so all in together. Only six weeks into our relationship, we started sharing money. Because I basically said, you know, like, oh, I'll pay you, you know, a thousand bucks a week and we'll we'll sort of do it. And then after the second week, I like didn't have the money. I'm like, oh, we'll just, whatever you need to pay, we'll just share it together. And we just shared it. And and from then we just went all in and and built it. And And she just really backed me. You know, it's like such this thing of like, I always say like, you know, the biggest financial decision, the best, the most important financial decision of your life is choosing the right partner because that is the unlock. Because I know with that is that she had this belief in me that made me feel like I could run through a fucking wall. It was like she would just back me to the end. And that is so important is your intimate partner believing in you. Because like, yeah, it helps your parents and your friends and stuff, but it's nothing as the, as the scale of that intimate partner. And that was such a unlock for me because I was like, you know, let's go and we just drove and, and built it and yeah together and we just we never like it was always whatever whatever we spent was always together it was always us we're always the one charging towards it and yeah it was it was amazing return so when you started in the markets at 17 how old were you when you sold all these schooly slippers how many years in was that um, so it would have started, so three years in, so it wasn't like straight after schoolies. It was like a couple of years after. So I was like 20 or something when I started it and I'd done them a few years. I think that was the third year. And was that the first time you started working with Tani and how did you know her prior? No. So we was, I was, um, like. We never worked together. I was just seeing her like in the, you know, in that sort of lead up and we were always um, 
you know, we weren't official, but we were, you know, very close. And then, and it was just sort of like a, a timing thing, but it was this thing of putting that in this pressure together that it was like we really could see, I believe, we could really see each other's true colours and, and true core, you know, like, so it was such that putting yourself in that that pressure was like it just sped up so much more than the, you know, just the dating, going through, talking about random shit rather than like we're both in this figuring out something together as one unit was like that's where I really feel like we really just progressed our relationship because of that we could really see each other at our, you know, at a much deeper level. So from 17 to 24, you're working in the markets and I guess you were just funding all your weekday business with the cash you were making on the weekends. Yeah. And you did that for seven, like how much would you be able to make off two days every week? I could make, definitely I was making, you know, between a thousand and two thousand profit a day probably. Wow. And it'll be just the Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cause it's, it's the thing though of like when you've got that, but, and this is where I was so important. Like it's, it's in teaching my team, the sales thing is like, that was training the muscle. And this is like anyone starting in the store. I'm like, this is the fucking gym. You're going to learn this fucking muscle of influence. It is the most important lesson because it doesn't matter how good or how smart you are at other shit. If you can't influence other people with your ideas to take action and run with it, your ideas just fucking die. And it's like, you've got to build this muscle as a foundation. And it's like, I know that's what I did at that markets was just training, 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 training through that rejection, training, learning rapport with all different people, training those pre-frames and the upsell and the cert tone of certainty and all these techniques that were so important that I did it so much. I became unconsciously competent. It became part of my nervous system. And then that's when you've truly got that skill. And then that's when I had that belief, like I said, I, I could once I fell in love with street where I'm like, I can sell this because I had this belief I could just sell anything like, and that was built from seven years of in the gym, building that, that muscle. It wasn't like, you know, this is where something like, I didn't go to one course or watch one bloody webinar and was like, Oh, got it now. It's the gym. It's the muscle that was built. And then over the seven years, were you, making your stands bigger, selling more items, getting more US brands, and we just basically bulk ordering it from the States and selling it individually. So so the seven years was all China, like the consumer electronics mm. and this digital camera that I had, digital photo frames, stuff like that. The streetwear part only came in like that last year. And then I was like, that grew really quick because I was like, oh, here's more shorts, here's hats, here's this. And then I was like, oh, and I sort of always had this thing I wanted to get out of the markets because this was one of the hardest things is it became 
my identity, right? All my mates and stuff would joke, oh, he's a he's a carny. He's, you know, like from the Simpsons episode and stuff, like he's just a carny at the markets. And it was always this thing of like, I knew I could be, I knew I could be bigger and 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 could expand that, but I was always looking for the right one. And, and there's this story with the camera I had, right? So the camera, I talked, I tell my team this about flow states create magic, but you know, getting really good, crushing it, selling the camera. And I'm like, in those really peak states, you know, after doing a big sales, you know, having a big crowd, selling like 20 in one go or something, you feel so good. And this is like when these epic ideas come and I'm like, this could be so much bigger. Like imagine this camera just had a waterproof case on it. Imagine this, taking it snowboarding, taking it surfing. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm emailing the factory right now. Like one of the important lessons I took, like in that state, you've got to take action. I emailed the factory. Hey, you ever developed a could we develop a waterproof case for this? Oh, we've actually, they wrote back, we've developed this one for actually our other US customer. If you, he hasn't paid the mold fee. If you want it, we'll send you the sample and you can have it and do it. They, they would have sold it to both, you know, but that's, uh, I got the, anyway, the mold and I was like, oh my God, this is it. This would be so cool. And I made this crucial mistake of asking the wrong people their advice. And I asked you know, people at the markets or other people that didn't know, I'm like, what do you think of this? It's digital camera, it's waterproof, take it snowboarding, surfing. And every person was like, why wouldn't have Canon done that? Why wouldn't have, you know, Sony done that? How are you going to compete with them? You're just like this carny at the markets. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. They, why wouldn't have done that? And they're like, oh, what are you going to do when it leaks? I'm like, oh, yeah, it's going to leak. You're right. And I have to give them their money back anyway. I was like, yeah, stuff that. I told the factory, no, don't worry. Anyway, like three months later, the factory's like, oh, the US guy that's selling this other camera wants to connect to you, you know, his one to see if he wants to sell your one, um, sell his one in Australia. And I remember he emailed me, I'm like, yeah, oh, you idiot. Who's going to buy that? Don't you, how are you going to compete with Sony? How are you going to compete with Canon? Oh, what are you going to do when it leaks? Anyway, that was Nick Woodman, the founder of GoPro. That sample I had was the sample of the fucking original GoPro camera and it was crazy because that just blew up and I was still at the markets right years later and I remember going to like you know the electronics store like Harvey Norman and seeing the GoPro display and it's like the video of the surfing and the snowboard I'm like shaking my parents I'm like you don't understand this was exactly in my head like so I was so bitter about it, but I did really learn that lesson is like when I see it and I feel it and I know in future, I'm not going to hesitate. I'm not going to ask, you know, people with unqualified, you know, that don't understand the context, their opinion. I'm going to know in myself and I'm just going to take action because I always had it sitting there being like, what a, what a mistake. Anyway. I when I felt that with that streetwear, I sort of felt it straight away when I was like, you know, when I saw the bait, when I saw like I was like that crooks and castles with the bandana, I was like, this is the coolest shit. I was like, that surfwear is whack. No one will want to wear it. like this is the next thing. And I was just like, I was like, I went way more aggressive and didn't listen to. Because obviously I had people that whole time, 
what are you going to do when people stop wearing flat brim hats? You know, I had that so much at the start. It's like, oh, you know, you know? I remember saying, we'll sell curved ones. And then it's like crazy, like the curve, like the 940A frame became like, you know, $100 million fucking business, you know? And it's just, it is this thing is, is like, it's so easy and our brains are wired to see that, to go to comfort and certainty and not see it. But there is that you have to train it to go to growth and train it to go to that uncertainty because that's where the growth and the progress is. But yeah, that's that was uh, that's when I knew I wasn't going to hesitate on the streetwear thing and I was going to uh, run with it. And I was like, I'm going to be like, no, I go, I'm like, yeah. So that was my my vision. What happened towards the end of this seventh year? Were you still capped at that one to two K profit a day on those weekends? And how did you save up money to invest into your first store? So we weren't, I wasn't making, I, I had like a little bit of capital because obviously I, I was, and this is this thing, I was like, I, we didn't spend it. We were investing always sort of in it. But after that schoolies was when we had a big, because, you know, we sold all those slippers. Then we had out of all that, maybe it was probably 80 or 100,000 profit. And then we'd had, you know, so that's when I'd, I'd had a fair bit of sort of capital. And then it was like, you know, we could, we could sort of, I, I, I went after, once I sort of got those dicky shorts and started to get them like every week, we were adding something new, whether it was hats, whether it was this tease or whether it was this clearance stuff or, you know, um, we were always just on the hunt, like week on week um, growth. And then we went to this first little store at Southport, which I just did a cash deal on the rent, you know, found the landlord, did the deal on the spot, got the keys and then just fitted it out with my mate that did the car stereos, which is crazy because he, he used to do my car stereo and stuff and he just learned that and go, oh, could you build this change room? Like, yeah, yeah, you can build it. Crazy. He was the one that built all our stores right up until Las Vegas. Like he actually did all the LED screens and stuff for that, you know, to this day, grew with us that whole whole time. But um, Scott Weir is his name. But yeah, that was um, that was how we, how we uh, funded that first initial one. When you're buying all the hats or the hoodies or the pants or the different brands like Dickies, Carhartt, like where do you think your taste for fashion came from? Were you just on top of social media, always on top of the culture, seeing what celebrities wore and you sort of were already years ahead in Australia by doing that? Yeah, but this is, this is really important where I see a lot of fashion kids stuff up. Look, I love streetwear. I fucking love it. But... I love being an entrepreneur more. And this is where I see so many great ones, but they're an artist first and they can run it off a cliff because this is the thing with artists. Artists have these bias. You've got to be, you've got to look out for it. Like, and this happens in any field, right? As people get more experience, like it's like a bell curve distribution. Like as journalists get really good at writing journalists, they start writing articles to impress other journalists. As chefs get really good, they start cooking meals to impress other chefs, but they miss the market. And then they think, oh, the market's done. Oh, they don't have a distinguished palate, you know? 
And this happens with designers, right? They design product that's past the market. And I was always from an entrepreneur lens first. I'm like, no, no, this is where the market and recalibrate, recalibrate for the market. So that was something that was very important, I think, is that as much as I love stuff, I would still make sure that would cross over and adjust to where the market was. And I think I was sort of lucky in that I love streetwear, but I was never like the huge fashion risk taker, right? I was never like, well, I'm going to wear the polka dot fucking thing with that. And I could sort of tone it back to where that bell curve, where there's a lot more customers than you go to that pointy. And it's important to sometimes have the pointy, which draws it, you know, which can set the trend. I learned a lot of this from luxury, you know, how you can have that really unique product to sell the one under and, and there's, there's real um, magic in doing that. But I just believe where, especially as I've, I've, I've met a lot of other clothing entrepreneurs is like, oh, I'm like, I fucking love the clothes. I love the, the entrepreneurship more. And especially too, when we look at like the valuation and the size of our business and stuff that we got to, it's like, you can see that's, that's, that's the difference. How do you think like brands like Apple and Steve Jobs, they sort of like move the markets because they remove stuff like the headphone jack, they didn't have a keyboard like Blackberry. So they were doing things that the market weren't used to, but then somehow the market adapted to what they did. Yes. That's that's a great, that is a great point. I suppose though, that like Apple is such a unicorn, right? In that, of course, it's gonna have it's an outlier. Like if we go back to the bell curve, it's off the fucking rector scale of its sort of, but it was definitely, you know, in that position and power they can move the market. And this is whoever is the market leader. I've definitely seen as we've got position of trends like you know, where we could, you know, move it and, and push it in the direction that we like the more we became that established leader. I always used to say this about Kanye, right? Kanye is so influential in fashion. If he walked out the next day, not now, he's, you know, since pre when he lost the plot, but like if he just wore a wardrobe, if he wore a bathrobe right outside, like the next fucking day, we'd be selling bathrobes because it would be like that. That's fucking cool. Like, because he could set it and he was one of those huge uh, needle movers. And especially, he's right on some of those podcasts when he talks about, you know, Tyler Creator, ASAP Rocky, Jack and his style doing his things where he's like, it all sort of Virgil, you know, and it all tied back to him. He was the one that really moved it and that ripple in the, the pond. So how much did it cost for you to fit out your very first store? Uh, not much, like, oh, probably like 20 grand. It was, yeah. it was just stuck together with secondhand stuff. I used to go to the secondhand shop fitting place like every week on like the first time negotiating. Oh, what's this? Oh, could we repurpose this? Or, you know, do it in a resourceful way, print this stuff in China and stick it over the top and make it look unique and different. Like, that's the thing of, of when you don't have the money, you're fucking resourceful. It's one of the things of like, as an entrepreneur, you can never lose that resourcefulness. And this is, 
I've definitely seen it, right? Once you have this and you have that sort of cash, like, oh, just fucking just pay someone else to do it. Pay that, like, when it's that resourcefulness is actually, it's such an important state to have as an entrepreneur because it's so contagious in the team. And it's the second you drop that, everyone just goes, oh, you know, not my money, you know, and it just becomes, that was such a, uh, a key thing is, you know, a lot of those stores, I remember our first Brisbane store, our, our big one when we moved across, so we were lucky we got this, um, we, we signed in a demolition spot and then these people wanted us to move out and they paid us, you know, it was an epic sort of negotiation to get um, money to leave the lease early. And I think we got about 200000 to leave the lease. And I was like, okay, we're going to do this fit out on Queen Street. And I'm like, the fit out, and it was like 200000 I was betting the whole lot on the fit out. And I was like, 200000 for a fit out. It was like, oh, fuck, I felt sick. Like, this is so much to spend. This is insane. But, you know, that store was doing like $6 bucks. you know, in only a couple of years later out of that. 200 grand fit out and it's like now we spend you know literally tens of fucking millions <laughs> on a fit out but um it's that resourcefulness in those those things to to make it work was key so you're seven years into the markets then you open up your first store how many years in were you working your very first store before you even started your second store yeah, so we would have we would have done that first store from the markets like probably a year, and then the next Brisbane store happened within a year from that, like another nine months. And then the Brisbane store we got paid out to move, and that was the bigger Brisbane store, and then that ripped. Then we had the the Gold Coast one. Then we opened one in Sydney the next year. What happened? How are you just opening up new stores every freaking year? after launching your first store? Well, because we, were, we weren't spending anything, we were reinvesting and we were always on that sort of model of like, you know, and I'd really in, ingrained this sales into the team and, you know, we were in there, Tony and I were working 80 hour weeks every day in the store, you know, leading that from the front, driving that sales part. And, you know, those stores were probably, you know, that Brisbane one within like, within a year was probably doing like, yeah, that 4 million, like, but was probably putting out a million free cash flow. And then that, you know, okay, do Sydney. Sydney fit out probably cost mm, 600, 500, which we paid out of cash. We didn't even get a loan for that, you know. And I negotiated all those deals with like, fuck, zero fit out contribution, right? Because I wanted the rent deal with no percentage rent no thing and, and get the best deal and and that was where a lot of stores right they go and they they go oh just they want the whole fit out paid for by the shopping center but then they just get absolutely ripped off on rent and get all these percentage increases plus all this where because they're set up like that because they need the cash flow where i was so much of like no we're paying for the fit out we're owning that but the rent cheaper and then bang building on that and then once we got that we built and we got our stores so our stores were ripping and our stores were everything right we'd started online from the early days it was very slow and it was like 
Anyway, we got it up to a point, I remember, and it was like in 2015, and it was like stores absolutely crushing it, making so much profit, and online was losing $300,000. And I was like, oh, like online, it was so hard. You had to have developers because this was the Magento days, and they keep the thing live, and we're competing against Surf Stitch and Iconic, which just lose millions, like chasing this sort of customer. And I was like, should we just scrap online and just focus on the stores? Like it's it's just so hard. It's just never going to make money. I was like, but I know it's the future. Like I know these other guys that are just losing money. They're going to run out of money at some point. And if we just keep building it, keep that foundation, it will it will pick. And what was the game changer? Shopify came along, and we moved from Magento to Shopify. And everyone thought we were crazy because they're like, what are you doing? That's for beginners, you know? And then it was like the unlock because then we had Afterpay, you know, well, first thing of Afterpay, we had the e-com. We, you know, I was always huge into the Facebook ads. I've been in them since 2010 driving. Then I was like super into it using like the right Afterpay upsells and remarket and with the right copy, you know, buy it on Afterpay only hundred bucks and, and like really getting that to to harm online and then online kicked, but stores were still really good. And yeah, we were sort of right in the sweet spot pre-COVID because we're already 50% of our sales online and 50% stores, which compared to everyone else in the market, we were so far ahead. So once it all swung online with COVID, and then, you know, sales just, we just grabbed all that market share. We went right up to like, 82% at one point but then that's the that was the beauty of like the Australia of you know we opened back up stores would rip you know thing and on and off and we could keep it all balanced and that's when I sort of knew it was a good time well I knew to take on the US we're already doing heaps online to the US just shipping from Australia and I was like this is proven like I know this will work we can sort of sell the dream and the story to the investors, get the, get, you know, sell, take down, take half the money off the table. And, and I think that was such a thing. Cause like I said, I was an entrepreneur first rather than the, 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 like, I love streetwear. Don't get me wrong, but I was, I love the business more. And that's such an event as an entrepreneur, like a true entrepreneur. It's not, and this is what I think. And I talk to other ones and their whole thing. I just want to build and own this brand for 80, hundred years. It's just like, yeah, but the chances of that, like name name a hundred year old brand that's still private, that's still run by the fucking family, you know, like that's like saying you got to be the, you know, basically the LeBron in the NBA. It's that rare. And I always thought is like, you know what? I'd love to have that event. I'd love to have that. And this is the other thing. Like I always get talking with entrepreneurs. If you can get to that point, there's this thing of being an entrepreneur. It doesn't matter how big big your business gets. You keep thinking you'll get to this point and that pressure will release. I'm telling you, it never fucking does. Like that pressure of, you know, half a million dollar wage bill every week, the fucking thing. Did we get hacked? Did we get this? Did like the, of, of the fires, it never, ever releases. But I was like, when we took that money off the table, it was like, it was fucking gone. I never slept better. I never done this thing. And it was just like, oh my God. And 
I do think to a to a degree too that was part of the magic because that pressure was like made us work 80 hour fucking weeks and you know balls to the wall like solve stuff and we maybe we didn't um seize as much opportunity and lost maybe a bit of that hunger that was there before um and I think you know part of that public company you just can't move as fast quite as as when you're private and you know we we can make all the calls ourselves but um it was it was such an a an, an event to get to that point and that thing of like all this work all this betting all this risk we've taken has got us to this like you know true um magic magic moment and this this freedom and um you know where everything now you don't have to do anything you just get to do it you know and it's and that's what I keep telling them. it's the difference between being rich and poor is just you don't have to do anything you get to do it and you can actually change that frame really easy in the time but once once I did that um yeah it's a it's a real and it's well just entrepreneurs it's a it's a it's a big milestone for entrepreneur Simon, over the period of like five, six years where you launched like five, six stores, how did you duplicate your sales DNA onto store managers and get it to a point where you could just focus on e-commerce and these stores were just printing money without you? Never. Like the the thing that, that we did, which was, is that Tani and I, like especially pre-kids, we would, do, we would fly around to the stores every month do a whole company meeting and I would gas them up and teach them the sales training stuff over and over and over again. We do great like company culture thing, building thing. We take all this staff to Vegas every year, you know, and we'd have the most, we'd take them for the agenda trade show, but we'd, you know, go crazy partying, pool parties thing and like take 12 or 15 of them, like blow their mind. Like, and it would become such this iconic way that we would you know select the people and choose them and create this because this was our purpose our why at culture kings was create magic moments for our customers our teammates and ourselves we always had that as our north star like you know what if we just focus at the end of our life we're not going to remember everything we've brought but we're going to remember the moments like let's make us we don't hope they show up let's fucking create them and that was always our our purpose and we would do it for the team and stuff as well and and every month doing those meetings building that and then even up until you know this year I was still doing the um every week a video for every store staff even Vegas everything watched every week I'd go through the top leaderboard who's the best sales this is the thing this is skill and and I'd keep trying to give examples of like this skill is so important I just used you know to to influence this deal to give us like a million dollars credit or to get that Vegas fucking lease. How do you fucking think I got that fucking lease in Caesars Palace for an Australian brand? Like anyone from the, but it's like, because I had those skills and I built that foundation on them, I was able to stack it and do it. I guarantee it. If I didn't have that, I would never be able to do any of that. And so I just always reaffirm just how important these skills is and then none of them are going to work there forever this is a stepping stone this is the gym but you train this muscle here and I just want when they leave there to be like that skill and it's worth more than any uni degree worth more than you know especially fucking now with chat GPT is like holy shit I'm fucking right I told you 
you know, you don't need anything. You just fucking, if you can sell it, you know, because that's the, that was the, you know, that's how I would keep that connection and keep that, that performance of those sores. Um, I felt it was, and that's, I always say this, Tony and I, we're actually brick and mortar retailers at our core. Our brand was built around our stores. Fucking e-com shit. You're like, man, you can build that Shopify site. I can build that now myself in probably two days, right? It's like, you know, it's just how it's not even, it's so much of that is table stakes now, you know? Yes, but it's the brand and it's the brand is what enables you to, to convert a margin. And it's, I always say this is like, this was from our early days of the stories, how they feel, how I would measure brand is that, when we'd sell in store, say they had a bag from a competitor, right? From, you know, say they had a bag from JJ's or H&M or something, is that when they got their thing in the Colch King's bag, that they put the other stuff inside the Colch King's bag. And that's what it was like, yeah, well, that's us winning. Like, and always want to, to do that because that was that thing of they wanted that status of walking around the city with a Colch King's bag. And that was always, for me, I think such a key metric of, of brand because that is the, that's brand is just what's that premium people are willing to pay for that, for that and, you know, to attach that status, to attach that feeling. And this all tied back to when we say create magic moments for our customers, our teammates and ourselves is to create that energy around it that when they walked in the store you know from the greeting from the this the upsell to how they did it for all those clothes to all that celebrities that have been there like oh my god drake's been here i'm shopping here it's like oh my fucking drake you know and it's like all those little nuances that come together and then when they leave the store like they don't just walk out the store i like to think they it's like they got the cape on and they fucking fly you know it's that that's the that was our purpose right and i really and a lot of these you know, other businesses and stuff that I'm involved in now and stuff. I'm really trying to, I'm trying to teach that early and, and congruently like nail that purpose and nail it through the core values. Cause it's like entrepreneur, we can get excited by numbers and shit and graphs and moving up, but most people don't give a fuck about that. They do not light up. They do not get excited by that. But if you can define it in those right terms, those right stories that connects that is what can drive that behavior change, right? That can get them to be like, fuck, I get it. Like, I'm gonna, I'm I'm not just gonna like do this to hit this number or hit this thing. It's like when that guy walks in the store, I'm gonna light that motherfucker up and he's gonna leave the store feeling like a million fucking bucks. You know, I used to teach this when we had the barber shops in store to even the barbers. I didn't know how to cut, but it was just this thing of getting them in the right state of like, you want them when you finish that cut. And you take that cape off, that they stand up and they look in the mirror and they they do the each pan, they're just thinking in their head, like, where are the bitches at? Like that's what that is the outcome of cutting their hair, right? Is that they just feel that fucking good, like, wait, call them mates, we're going out tonight. Like, because you were able to craft that. And it's because I could see it once they got that outcome clear in their head, it was like. That's what changed the behavior. It was instant. It was like, you know, that was the outcome they were after. That was how it would go through the cut. They would have so much more fun enjoying it 
especially too when they saw that moment you know when you create them for other people you get them for yourself that's the thing of that those moments those magic moments where it's so powerful um and that yeah that was that's what I try and teach some of these other brands and stuff and it's it's you know getting that and getting it ingrained and I really think it's important in building that culture what was the catalyst for you to put barber stores within your store like that was so new and different it was just simply I saw this store in Brisbane when I just started the thing and I was always like oh people would go there I'm like the only reason that's in business is because right next to the busiest barbershop in the whole of Brisbane and I'm like it's just because they're spilling out on the street and they're waiting around they're just going in there and buying shit and I'm like if we just got the best barber from there and created a barbershop in the back they would all come here and they're all waiting around and I'm so good at sales. I'll just be selling them shit the whole time. They won't be able to escape. Anyway, that was the theory. And we started with that. And this was like, this was like really pioneering looking back because before this, there was no cool barbershops, right? Going to get your hair cut was like going to the doctor or something. It was just the same place you went to as a kid, you know, that was like the local that, that was getting your heck up. There was no experience to it. There was no any sort of pride in it. But that's what we sort of did and developed with the barbers and it and it grew and it and it went nuts. And but it was this thing, it was because this is an important thing of the business, very low barrier to entry, right? We would get these barbers and these barbers would get such status of being a culture king's barber. Oh my God, I cut the games here or I cut this is that they would get offers from all these other barbershops or to go start their own. And they would just think, oh, well, I'm only getting this. So I could get the whole thing. And yeah, and so we'd have this big barber turnover. And when they would leave, they would take all the customers. And then it's like, really? And it's this thing is because once they had that status of Culture Kings, it sort of propelled them. Oh, they're an ex-Culture Kings barber, so they're good. Like we give them the, the sort of cosign. Um, yeah, but it was, you know, it was great where, like, where we got it, but it was this thing, and I, I actually always have this regret on it that I saw it. I was like, okay, I know what to do with the barbershops. I'm going to make the haircuts $100. It's like they're $100 minimum. It's like if it's too expensive, don't go somewhere else. But I want the best barbers in Australia, and this is the best haircut experience, but it's $100. And my whole theory was that, you know what, this is where I'll have the best barbers. I'll be able to pay them the most. I'll always be able to retain them because no one else will be able to charge this. And it will bring such status to Culture Kings because it will be like, oh my God, $100 haircuts, but then it makes a $50 t-shirt look cheap, right? All just because it gives us that, that perspective. And, it, and I had it so in my head of like, did out the whole plan and I fumbled it. Because when I first tried to implement the barbers, the barber culture wasn't ready. They couldn't charge it. It was like their, their friend that would be coming in. It's like, I can't charge them that much, you know? Oh, it's only 40 bucks, only 35, you know? Oh, no, it wasn't a full haircut. It was just, and they just wouldn't, like, I couldn't break that culture of them charging the 100 bucks. Even though I was like, look, this is going to make you so much more financially. You're going to be on 100 grand. You're going to be the highest paid barbers. You're going to, you know, you're the best. Like, look at all these girls go pay $300 to get their hair done. They don't have the fucking skill like you. Like, I was trying to, but I just couldn't convince it 
that that was where the market needed to go. And we could have so said it. And I actually, I do, fuck, I know that would have worked if I would have just stuck to the guns and pushed through that period. It would have been, and it would have made the barbershops profitable. We would have had the best barbers. We would have had the highest status barbers. And as you see it all catch up now, because barbers are increasing, because they realize like you fucking, you can't fucking make money, right? If you're charging like, even 40 bucks. It's like, you think it's expensive. Like you think how long that proper fade takes like 40 minutes plus change over time, plus this, plus blades, plus red, plus thing. It's like you're going backwards. Has there been any solution to the turnover of barbers, barbers taking customers and taking that rep? Is there any solution to that? No, we just, we just closed them and changed them to jewelry stores. Mm. And it was just more, that was a really, you know, that was a really high dollars per square meter because obviously it takes less square meters and higher retail. So for us, it was like, oh, let's just do them and turn these vaults. They're called the vault. And we'd build those in there. And that's what we switched all our barbershops to the to the vault. And because it was the thing, like we had like, say, a thousand staff and say like, I don't know, maybe 50 barbers, but they would cause... 95% of HR drama was like you needed this whole HR team just to look after barbers because it was just a fucking mess. And once we got rid of it, it was just like, oh, fuck. It just, it, it was just, and it, I get it for them. We were always second fiddle because, you know, as much as they were good, like we obviously were so big on clothing and apparel and online. And I'd always look at it of like, like it would be really like a lot of stuff would drag my time into it. I'm like, oh my God, Barber says barbershops are like, you know, 2% of revenue. We can only get 2% of my time. So I just fob it off anyway. But it, it would have been interesting. I'd love to if, if that hundred dollar thing worked. I'm sure someone will there's already ones in Vegas when we were there, guys were getting their haircut for um I think they were paying a hundred in 20 US. It's like holy shit. So that's like 170 Australian. That is insane. Simon, what's the origin story be behind the influencers? Like how, what made you think of getting influencers to shop at your store and basically tie your brand with their brand and sort of increase the brand value? And it's everything you talked about earlier. You were able to siphon all these artists and then somehow tie that with Culture Kings with all these famous people shopping at Culture Kings. What was the origin story behind that? So it created, so this came through having the clear purpose first, right? Which was create magic moments for our customers, our teammates and ourselves. And in thinking of that, one of the magic moments, I remember as a kid going to a 50 Cent concert and seeing 50 Cent and like, this is the guy I've seen and worn all the hats and being like, and it's like, he's right there. And it's like, oh, like you just instantly remember it and recognize it. I was like, I remember that feeling so much. Even if we could get them in the store and like, yes, it would be amazing if they could get a photo. But even if you just see them, they'll get the buzz, right? And that was the magic moment. And I was always like, how do I create or create those moments to happen? And yeah, a lot of this, this originally started with um, Snoop Dogg and, and Superfest team which was so cool because he just recently did a post when he came back through and he had the original footage from the Snoop Dogg one that came in. It, that was actually in 2009, like our first store, when they came in. Um, but it was all the Superfest 
this festival and I'd coordinated with one of the guys that I met during the day that was part of the crew. And then I was like, oh, do you reckon they could come through the store? And they were like on the way to this um, barbecue thing. And I just text them and thing, and they all stopped in. And that was though a big moment. And I really, so my thing is like with Snoop and all that there, but there was a huge entourage crew. And a lot of that stuff, if you actually listen to the video, you're hearing the buzzers, the beepers going off. That's actually was like some of the entourage and crew just stealing shit, right? And because I couldn't, because there was so many celebs in this thing. And I was like, but Snoop, you see in the videos, don't worry, I got you. Like, yeah, you've given away a few stuff, but don't worry, I'll, I'll make sure this is worth it for you. And it was so cool that he sort of said that. And he tweeted us like even way back then, you know, and, and like our website just blew up straight away because it was just like some fucking WordPress shit or something, you know, it was like, didn't last but um it was just this this initial thing but I realized that power and that hype that we could sort of do and just drive off that and then we just tried to work out when other artists were in town you know ways to get them in and and it was that real network effects as as you got more it created more and others and then others would just randomly come in like Justin Bieber came in the store on his own and spent 10 grand and posted it on his Instagram. This is like when he was in those wild child days, but it was like 2015. How much is that worth today? You know, everybody spent 10 grand. It was like the thing of all the bags lined up. It was like nuts. So we just sort of, you know, this is where though, I suppose it's a longer story, but where you create the surface area for luck, you know? You know, how do you create the highest surface area for luck? But it is this thing of it comes from taking those bold risks, taking that, that real time and grind to, to work that out. And yeah, a lot of those deals. But it was like, as like you look at it now, it was like those earliest influencer marketing days. That was that was it. And you know, I really think we're only at the the start of that like all those big creators and stuff will be you know I uh, I reckon that all and this is why some of these ones I'm talking with and I'm like you know for the big big ones I'm like you need to do joint venture deals you need to cut them in on equity where they've got real skin in the game and they're because they're going to be fucking billionaires I'm telling you they like look at this Logan Paul Prime look at this Conor McGregor proper 12 whiskey like this Mr. Beast is the goal, you know, except they're all going to be multi-billionaires off this and this next wave, but it's that congruent or in connection, not this hold them up to hold, hold something for a second, you know, and this is where for an influencers, I really try and give this advice of like, like where they're just promoting every brand left and right. I'm like, could you imagine if LeBron went, Here's Nike this week. This is the best shoe. And then the next day going, here's Adidas. And the next day, here's New Bath. You wouldn't fucking trust the thing he says. You would lose all credibility. And like, that's what you're fucking doing when you're doing jumping from one to one. And it's like, you just see their effectiveness, right? Go to zero. You're way better to commit, get the right deal that you fully commit with that company. And you're like, I'm fucking all in on this. And that is the thing. You've got to take that risk of, not taking 
the 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 money from other ones and really driving that long-term partnership but i'm like you do that right that's where that magic's going to create it but those little quick hits you know you're just you're breaking every rule in in branding and it's just just because you think you can delete the post on social or it's only on story no one saw it it's like oh come on yeah that's not gonna that's not gonna work interesting does that mean going forward you'd like culture kings to start bringing on equity partnered influencers yeah yeah so we've actually had a few of these um i had this big sort of plan some have worked well and some haven't but i i think with this as i i went a bit i didn't probably allocate the proper resources on it and what's most important is you need to get the person you've got to see where the puck's going you've got to get them big on the upslope which is like that's the hard that's the talent scout that's the thing we're not at the sort of plateau um which is which is we just the ones that we tried we didn't hit anyone on that big sort of exponential up curve but i do sort of see um that is a as a future and you know, where I could build the right vehicle that could be a bit like uh what's the one that does it for Kim Kardashian? Um CMs. Yeah, but the company, the other company behind it, oh, I've forgotten the name of it. But they're the ones like they do skims and they did good America and they're the they're the real like you need that real expert type, which I believe I can build that right foundation and that that really super streamlined um machine that could just clip on and scale it but it's it's like that thing is you need that influencer that that person it needs to be in their dna that product it needs to be in their bones like that's the thing skims is so authentically kim kardashian proper 12 fucking conor mcgregor does it so fucking well like it's not you can't and that's that thing it's it's his it's theirs you're just creating, building the flywheel machine to let their sort of things sing. But they've got to be that that driver and propeller of it. And when they do that right, that's that's what you're seeing. And and that's what I sort of that's a that's a big thing that I I see as a big big trend. With these companies like Proper Twelve Skims, and they're like getting crazy like billion dollar valuations, like how are they building the business in a way where it can be sold without them? Because isn't it without them all of a sudden, like aren't people buying it because of that influencer? Yeah. I do think it would be, I, I tell you this, I wouldn't buy it without them. Right. But that partner that built it could sell their stake with the other one. And this is whether it's dividend or royalty or how they're still going to get way better like it's like if you look at the Yeezy Adidas deal, like this is the thing of like for Kanye to, to lose this. I was just like, no one in their right mind would ever pay someone 15% royalty. Like that is insane. 15% of gross. Like, what why would you take the risk of building a business and all the factories and all the things? You're making 15 fucking percent. How many businesses go look through the thing, actually make 15% net fucking profit, free cash flow? We, but you've got that with no risk. It's like the greatest deal in the history of time. And him thinking he can do it himself was just like, oh, it, it made me so much because as that entrepreneur, knowing like, I don't know how you negotiated that 15% deal, but you did. 
which is the greatest negotiating deal of all time. But to fucking let it go was just, oh, that, because it was getting to get 450 million in royalties in a year. Like, go through the SMB. How many businesses have a single owner like that spit off 450 million free fucking cash flow a year? Like, fucking none. Or there are, but there's, there's just, it's so minuscule small. And it's like, you're doing all this with no risk. It's like the the deal he had was a once in a lifetime deal. And and I know it's the thing is Adidas, the problem was they got hooked on the drug of it. They should have only used it as a top tier to sell the product underneath. But they got so on the pusher and driving so much revenue from it that it became like it's Achilles heel. And now as they unwind it and everything, and but it just shows how influential they sort of are. But yeah, my more thing is I would want him to be equity of the net. I would always do those deals to be equity of the net, not just pay 15% off the off the off the top, because that's just unless you're using it just as some brand play and you super keep it limited to just to to do the takedowns underneath, which you see Adidas do, right? We would have it called, we'd call it, we'd joke it, and so I'd call it the poor man's Yeezy, right? Which was, what was the shoe called? But it was like the takedown yeah. of it, you know? But that's how all those companies do it, right? Look at like even Nike with the Virgil, right? With the 10, then they would do this hoodie that looks sort of off-whitey, but it's just the Nike one. But that would be open allocation. You can buy as many as you want, back the truck on it, it's a hundred bucks and just every kid would buy that. So use that. That's this art of, you know, you use that. I call it the red handbag to sell the black. You use that exciting different product, but just to sell the one under. And especially if you're not paying the royalty, like this is where it gets real tricky and arty, but yeah. Interesting, Simon. With your ability to sell and the power of your brands, what's your thoughts on selling other people's products and other brands versus creating your own culture king items? And I know you guys do, but is it worth going hard on that? Because you guys are known for selling sort of Nikes and all these brands. Why do you guys go hard on creating your own culture king sort of clothing? Well, but the, the thing is, like more than half or half the sales are our own brands. Wow. Yeah. See, so it is this thing of, of leveraging and using and being a great partner that we can excel and tell those stories. But obviously so much of those brands that we create because we understand the market and we understand so much better the customer and we can make it quicker on a better time that we can really meet that market. And that was always the thing of pushing vertical product every, but our thing is that we just didn't do this generic thing is we created brands that went after a specific customer and really defined it and really put the true creative in control right? Although they're an employee, that's their brand basically. And they have that control to run it and drive it and create it within the right parameters. But it's like that, that was the magic. Yeah. So, so it is definitely, but Culture Kings is a brand. I always sort of didn't want to sell that and just use it as the not for sale to be able to create this sort of hype and build this, um, thing in it too because although we could have sold it if we would have just sold say heaps of culture kings tees or hats like the problem is say like lots of the 
people wear it, it could really dampen the other one. So it was sort of like that was our supreme in a way of to create the, the exclusivity. And then we would just create brands that spoke directly to a customer, you know, that wanted different, this one wanted this, this one wanted the slimmer fit with the taper or with a, you know, part of we'd tell each each brand would tell its different story. How did you guys go from like just being brick and mortar stores to the manufacturing, supply chains, logistics, shipping, going online? Like that is probably a bulk of the business now. Yeah. Um, because I was an entrepreneur first, not the artist first, right? Like I was still unpacking under it, well, how do we get more margin? How do we get more this? How do we build, you know, and looking from an overall market thing, not just getting lost in, I want to have the coolest shit, which a lot of fashion brands do, right? This is the thing of like your ego can get so in of you just want to have the coolest shit and to have the coolest shit, you have to exclude so many people, you know, to have this. And then it's like to exclude people, you walk away because the bell curve of where the sort of money in the market is. And I think that was a, a thing that as I was going through my 20s of, of building culture kings, of loving and, and the coolest sort of stuff. And then like, you know, I'd have those earlier customers like, oh, you're a fucking sellout now. It's not cool because it's so big and everyone knows about it. And you were like smaller for and it's like, and I remember like, fuck, well, do I want to be to impress this kid that I'm like the coolest kid or do I actually want to build a great business that supports these, you know, our employees, supports their team, that supports our suppliers that can build and create. And I'm like, it's always going to be this, but to have that dream of those iconic stores around the world that create the theatre, Disneyland, it's like, you know, it's, you you just got to, you've got to get recalibrated to that market. And I, I do think it is that, it is the creative dilemma that I, I try and talk through all those creatives of like, where they're going to pass the bell curve. You're just designing this shit to impress other fucking designers. And that's the worst when you've got them all in the room and they're all fucking hotting each other up about how fucking good their designs are. And then it's just like, not what go to speak to some not one person will walk down the street wearing that shit. Like it's just way too whack. Like, but it's yeah, that's that happens in um in every creative endeavor. I always sort of say it's that right balance and just to think of it, the best brain I always use was think of it as a bell curve of distribution and be like, wait, are we right at this point here where it just fucking falls off and there's, there's no one? And yeah. How did you go about finding talent that could have a good taste on culture and could also figure out the bell curve and stay in the middle? They weren't some really like high-end fashion designer that made stuff on the outer ends. Yeah, the key is you need them to create and think of that, but it's like this. Working with a designer, it's like a kite. It's like flying a kite. You've got to give them enough rope that they will fucking, like, fly, but then you just got to reel it back and bring that tension. So they go past it and you just bring them back. You go past it, bring them back. Because if you suffocate them, they'll always, they'll never unleash that thing. They'll never have fun if they're not... You know, I have this thing, the team that has the most fun wins. Like, they've got to have fun. They've got to love doing it. They've got to, when they're doing that, that's the art of it. And then you just reel them back. 
And what were the items that people from the US were buying? You're talking about how before you sort of transitioned into the United States, people from the States were buying stuff from your online website. Were they buying Culture King items? Were they buying Australian brands off your store? Basically, because a lot of our stuff is world exclusive, right? So even the stuff with the brands, we get the brands to make it for us. Like we design it, we do it, we see the gap in the market. So it was a lot of that exclusive sort of product and, you know, just our brands through the right content, through the right ads, through the right, you know, I've been on Facebook ads since 2010, you know, spent $100 million plus on it. Like I understood it, understood how to build the right funnel, how to remarket and, and we could just test it sort of slowly and build on it in the US and it was like convert and I couldn't believe it at the start people were paying like 20 bucks shipping and stuff but you know we got it to a really big business shipping from Australia and yeah. Now that you've expanded to the states what advice did you get on why most Australian bands die when they go overseas like what have you guys done differently to avoid that from happening? I researched this and I felt most did it, most died is because they dabbled at it. And I always think this, if you dabble it, you do it like, oh, we'll just sort of see, we'll just dip our toe in. It's like, nah, fucking don't even bother, right? And this is why I took money off the table because I was like, if we're going to do it, we got to do it right. And that's why I was like, Vegas, the entertainment capital of the world, we're the most entertaining fucking brand, you know, we're the entertainment of retail, we're going to fucking pioneer. Like that was the thing and, you know, we spent a fucking scary amount of money on that fit out and how it all sort of came together. And we put the studio in it, like but state-of-the-art recording studio. You know, it's got the secret room. It's got the bar. It's got the DJs. It's like the full basketball court. It's like the, it's like the full theater Disneyland experience. And that's the thing is we didn't dabble at it. We went in big. We backed it with the right money and the right product, the right part to do it. And, and you know, it was a, it was a thing because I remember when I when I first when we put the first hoarding up there and I was walking to check it the first time and it had the Coach Kings hoarding up. Coach Kings, world famous for streetwear. I was like, oh fuck, imposter syndrome. Like I just made this shit up and it's all in base. Are we are we going to be able to pull this off? Like you know, because it was still that thing. I'm like, we all have that imposter syndrome, right? I'm like, I'm the kid from Mount Isa in Australia, and now I'm like, how am I? supposed to just think on you know smoke all the americans at their own game you know and it was the thing but we just we pulled it off we did the playbook we did a textbook tani was eight months pregnant did the whole store hired 100 staff we got them all trained we got them all fucking and then boom it's just off to the races and it was such a feeling of like holy shit you know like you know seeing it really work and grow and and crush in america it's like it's like oh wow like yeah it's build it and they will come any plans for the second store uh yeah but i can't talk because we're a public company and it's like you know i wish i i, I wish i could just be like oh this this and this and but yeah it's it, and this is why you know for me sort of stepping out of the sort of the day-to-day -day is like you know i sort of feel it's it's just for this entrepreneur sort of like myself and I just think too I've just gone so deep down the AI rabbit hole like since that came out in you know November chat GPT is like I've never felt anything it's a bit like that GoPro feeling of like this just changes everything like I don't think people fucking understand it's like 
like I throw the term around game changer a lot. You need to delete every time I've ever said it. And it's, this is the only time you can say something's a true game changer because it changes everything. And we think like, remember we thought like AI is going to be robots and it's going to take like blue collar jobs. It's like, it's going to take every fucking white collar job, every creative job, every like, it is so mind blowing. And I sort of felt as I went deeper down this, I'm like, I need to really learn and understand and get as big a grasp on this so I can help see where the future's going because it's, and just how much it's changed like this year, like it is, it is so mind blowing, let alone, um, you know, I've, I've really sort of think this is, this is uh, a real step change and that I want to, I've, I've got to not stick my head in the clouds. Like I think a lot of, especially big business, a thing and thing, oh yeah, it's just a thing and we'll just keep going where it's like, I want to understand, I want to be on the tools. I want to understand it, you know, from the exact way of how it can do. So I can, you know, really down to that first principles from the GOAT Elon of like understanding, because this just reset a lot of first principles. Because it's like, wait, you don't need to know that now. You can just do it like this. Wait, you don't need to fucking know all pivot tables and all this shit now and hire all these fucking people because you can just ask the, dump the whole data in Excel and ask the question and it will tell you. You know, it's like there's so many, you know, areas that it's um, it's affecting. And my more thing is to really, I was like, if I could just really learn and go deep this, you know, for a few months and, and truly get my head around it and understand it, like I don't want, I want to be right there on this next wave and not be like, you know, because it's like I really believe it. it's I'm one of those, uh, you know, AI ones jumping around like, oh my God, this is this is gonna change everything. And I yeah. Simon, are you learning about AI so that you can pass on that knowledge to the businesses in your portfolio? Or do you want to build a company leveraging AI? Um both. Like I because I suppose for myself now as the entrepreneur, as I've seen these guys I've looked up to like these billionaire ones like Brett Bundy or Michael Rubin or Jamie Seller that owns authentic brands. I'm like, fuck, I want to be like that. You know, they've had the big exit around the same age, you know, thing, but then they build it in multi-billions and they don't need to be CEO. It's just how they, you know, you know, it's just that next level of entrepreneur. And, and that's my sort of thing to do it. But I do want to keep this. I want to keep those skills sharp. I want to keep it. I, I truly believe you use it or you lose it. And I want to be able to really understand the AI, how we implement in one company, how we can learn it. And then like, what's this other company we can buy and implement and, and it will just make it impact immediately. You know, I really feel there could be a lot of that. And yeah, but I, I haven't, I haven't exactly, like my thing is I'm still deep in the sort of learning and processing stage yet, but rather than, you know, just, throwing um throwing sort of money after stuff right now i think it's a, a bit of time to sort of sit in cash and wait when you talked about it being a game changer like literally before this call like i don't have any coding knowledge at all i was literally able to be like hey can you help me or teach me how to build a thing that can scrape all the titles from my youtube channel because we have a thousand videos and i was just following the steps i'm learning how to use the terminal i'm learning how to install 
Google API into my Python and install Python on my MacBook. And then once I scrape the thousand titles, now I could go ahead and personally message every single client and be like, hey, this is the client's data. Please look for the most tailored video to this person and build a message on why they should watch this video and why. And it's like insane. And I could just do it and all of a sudden, all my, all, everyone on my email list has a personalized video for them. Yeah. Yeah, that's, and see, because you did it yourself, you're processing so much more of those ideas and how it works. You're so much more in depth. And that's what I've learned is that sometimes when you're so far up, you don't sort of understand those nuances and you can miss it. That was me, like how I built Culture Kings. So I knew because those other surf stores were like, you know, too high up, like, oh, streetwear, whatever. This is the thing where I'm like, you, you don't get it. You're not seeing the customer. You're not in it like me. I used to just DJ in the store. I wasn't even DJ. I was just playing a mixtape. I was watching the customer. I was doing the buy and I was learning, understanding it, getting that real touch and feel that I could just make those right decisions. And that's that's what business is. It's whoever makes the best decisions wins. Or whoever makes the least mistakes, I like to say, wins. But it's, it's the... Um, yeah, that's awesome that you built that. And it's like, look at that, personalized. And, and you could just keep going down the rabbit hole. That could build a whole flow. It's like, now you've watched this, watch this, you know, now, you know, and it's just. And like, I have no coding knowledge at all. And it's become my teacher. Like, it's way better than watching a Udemy course on how to code. Way faster. And I'm like, hey, I did what you said. And this is the error code that popped up. And it gives me like a new code. Hey, try this new code. And it's- so Did you do that with AutoGPT? Yeah, the free version. Yeah, yeah. So, Simon, how do you stay motivated after that big exit? You know, you might have a routine, you do your cold shower, you wake up early, but then how do you sort of, what keeps you going and, and knocking out an eight hour day and like getting some work done? And, and My big thing is I've seen ones that have had the sort of exit you know, you have that big dopamine, you have this goal, but if you don't have the next goal lined up, like it will all drop away, right? The journey is the chase. The game is the chase. And for me, it's so important that routine, you know, that I do and in how I frame it and how I train, you know, that gratitude and stuff. Cause like it is for me, it's the, it's the motivation of the fun. And, you know, this is where too, where I just started my, Instagram and stuff only like a month ago, you know, and it was this thing because I was like, I truly believe, you know, with AI is like, you're not going to trust these faceless brands in the future, right? They're just going to be, is this a robot? Is this a thing? Like you've got in that, I really feel, I love working with these sort of young entrepreneurs and I, yell, I love sort of teaching and I sort of think that too was something I needed to do because I was scared to do it, right? I was actually scared of like, I'd see all these other ones, oh, I know more than them. They've never built anything or they're just selling some bullshit course. But then I was like, I was too scared to start because I was starting from zero. And I was like, and it was this thing of like the first sort of video or, or how do I do it? And it's like, and, and it's even like this, you know, um, thing because, you know, I'm only on, I don't know, not many followers or something, but just like building it and giving it back. But it was that scary thing to start. But I do believe like, of the future and giving that knowledge and then it's so cool of like the talent pipeline i know it will become that will feed into all these other companies i know deal flow that will come from it and then it's just i love just you know i love to save some people from making some big mistakes you know and or 
give them the the pump up or the hype or the belief that they need like you know like that gopro story they don't fucking do that and just go like oh i'll ask the wrong people and then you know no no it's too hard don't worry about it and then fucking see it and like like shake yourself with like regret of what could have been you know i really want to drive and help motivate and i do believe like entrepreneurship is like it's the ch- it's so hard and it's such a challenge but it's it's so much fun and i want to i want to be with the one of like you know like i i consider it you know it's the metaphor of like you're stepping into the arena you know like every time you fight out there there's a greater chance of dying but you fight fucking anyway and that's that's the sort of part and people can say all shit from the grandstands but they don't they don't have the fucking balls to step in in the fucking arena you know and it's the thing is like i want to be like look i've been in the arena i want to help you i want to give you as much thing and i want to applaud you for just stepping the fuck in there because most people won't you know and if you do like yes it's going to be hard yes it's going to be a battle but i'm telling you that true vision feeling of seeing something in your head and making it real and it becomes like something it's like that feeling is fucking euphoric and it's worth the chase you know it, it's worth even having a crack even if you miss that's that thing as that entrepreneur i'd rather have been at the markets and had a crack than work any job to to sort of i'd rather have a crack and, and fail and than not have one and be in the grandstands Simon, tell me about One Life Club and, and the work you've been doing there. Um, is that what the personal brand funnels into or are you doing the personal brand to also get deal flow for companies that you can mentor and acquire and get equity or does everything work together? Yeah, and that that One Life Club is that I met Emil and I was like, oh, this is so cool because like I always saw Masterclass, but I'm like, they're doing way too, you know, like, like I was listening to the uh, Bob Iger of Disney, you know, and he's talking about the M and A deal flow of like seven and a half million billion dollar merger with Marvel and shit. And it's like this is cool, it's interesting, but it's such a top level, and it's like just this isn't really actionable sort of stuff that people can sort of use. And I was like, rather, I love the idea of interviewing these more grassroots ones on the come up, on the journey, getting those real, you know, that you can see it's possible. You can see these are just normal people that have stepped in the arena and had a go. In this constant sort of flow that we can have that sort of video and real courses, but then as well have these really cool fucking events that really bring the theater and show, but not like this. Oh, it cringes me so much of that get rich quick shit where you think you're going to go to this one course and learn this shit that's going to unlock. It's like, no, this is specific knowledge on one fucking school that skill that goes in the tool belt. Like our first one is Jordan Belfort, like. Wolf of Wall Street guy, but he invented the straight line system. It is the best sales. Oh, trust me, I've done that much sales training. His is the fucking best. But this isn't even the whole course. This is narrowing it down to tone of certainty and just how valuable that is. Because when two people meet, as long as there's rapport, whoever has more certainty influences the other person. If you can understand that skill and practice it, embody it, embed it in your nervous system so it's part of you, that skill will be worth millions of dollars probably in your career you have to learn it you have to but this is one fucking skill you go to one course you learn this once this isn't like 
the, it's one fucking tool on the tool belt and you're going to need to do get a hundred different ones, right? And that's what I see for One Life Club is this true way of teaching entrepreneurs of their like true actionable real skills that you need and understanding and stay as close as possible to the market. Like this stuff with the AI stuff, I'm learning stuff so I can put it in there. I'm like, well, this is sort of how you do it. And I can take one video and it can turn in this and then a blog post and then a Twitter post and all automatically. And it goes through Airtable, Zapier, the thing, and it's all done automated. And this is how I built it. And this is how you can do it. You know, or it's like, it's real actionable skills that sort of stay close to the market. But I believe it's this right balance of, because you need physical in-person events because I've spent like a million bucks on personal development. I've gone all of that. Like I know that the physical environment to get it in your nervous system is so much different than just watching a video, even someone here listening to a podcast. Like it, I always had this discipline. If I read a book or if I do a thing, I always make a list of actions. Because if, if I didn't take any actions or any behavior change out of it, there was actually no point in doing it. You were just doing it for fun, for entertainment. What is this list of actions that I could sort of do and intake? And if you listen to some of my videos, you know, the believability way to decision-making, but I didn't just listen, read the book principles and go, oh yeah, cool book. I fucking embodied that, embedded it, and embedded it as a core value, as better as a front of mind thing, is that when I'm in a meeting, I'm taking that conscious awareness of the purpose of the meeting is to uncover blind spots, is to make sure that whoever has the most knowledge, the most understanding in that field, the most runs on the board in that field has an overweighted decision. Not everyone's point of view is equal. And that that comes in, that that decision-making, believability weighted decision-making comes into process in that meeting, right? So it's this thing of not just reading the book and reading it once it's gone, it's embodying it and landing it. That's the unlock. Simon, what are like the top lessons, maybe top three lessons you've learned from investing a million dollars in personal development courses, programs, and events? I've definitely learned, you know, I think from, from Tony Robbins, you know, I went from the very early days of the UPW like 20 years ago, um, but I even used to jack all his stuff off LimeWire and shit when I was a kid and listen to it, you know, <laughs> but the thing of in the right state, you make a different decision and how important that emotional state management is in training. Because in the right state, you know, you take action, you determine, you're positive, you'll, you'll figure out, you'll find the way to make the way. In the wrong state, you can just, you have no idea how much you can make shit worse, right? And that's the thing, thing, like, can't get any worse. It's like, it can get fucking 10 times worse. <laughs> like, you know, it's this, the thing is yeah. how important that emotional state management and the awareness of it and then training that to, because it's a muscle. It's like emotional state. It's it's fitness. He refers to it. It's fitness, right? You've got to train that level to be fit in that uncertain times to be able to take on more uncertainty and expand that threshold of control, which is so important. I, I really feel that. And from understanding, it took me fucking that many times going on the seminar to actually really get it, but then embody it and then, you know, do ways to measure and improve it so that over time it would it would grow. That was a, a real one for me, like, you know, huge one on 
this guy, um, Alan Watkins, he's got a cool TED talk, it's pretty famous, but he wrote these awesome books and he's a neuroscientist, but really breaks down complex science in how our body and physiology works and how it can affect decision-making and just how you can use these skills to, to do it. Like I, I pay him like 20, oh, I don't know, I think it's like 15K an hour or something for individual coaching. He's the best. It's the fucking best. I could, I could talk for, yeah, but his books are awesome. They're so, they're so detailed there. There's so much nuggets. You, you can't just, you know, I'm too, it doesn't have all the stories and the stuff. It's all hard, actionable stuff, but it's a, it's a much harder read. Like I've always noticed reading his books, like I just go to sleep because they just sort of, overwhelm my fucking brain but there's so much nuggets in there if you can absorb them and embody them um but i wouldn't start there i would definitely start like like i think tony robbins one is so awesome just learning the state management how important you know understand your own values and what you measure set goals for yourself long-term ones you know and then break them down ones that really get you excited like oh my god it would be worth fucking dedicating my life to that even if just having a crack it's there was a one percent chance it would come off it'd be worth me doing everything possible then if you can get that point then you'll be so excited you'll fucking throw everything at it and if you throw everything at it because i believe most people don't you know you'll you'll sort of stand out and create that surface area for luck that i was talking about before simon what's your thoughts on like energy management and sort of increasing your mental capacity and, and willpower because that's something i'm struggling with i've been pushing things really hard over the last two months but every like three or four productive days i'm like i'm out for two days yeah. this is this is really important and i learned this so much from alan watkins this is the last question though because i've got to go okay you got so much gold out of this but this is the one right a lot of people think they're relaxing but they're not relaxing like if you're flicking through uh, TikTok or something, that's you're getting dopamine depletion. That is actually going, that is slowly, that is really actually draining your energy massively. Like, and I, he's got this great way of laying it out of like, you know, a positive energy chart. Like over this side, you've got higher positive emotions, low energy positive emotions and a lot of people are over here they're negative low energy we actually got to switch them to positive which is more like the relaxation the gratitude that is the time that you need to spend that time with no phone but this is the thing not just your monkey mind jumping around between different things really putting yourself in that and feeling and practicing the gratitude and simple stuff like being grateful for like, oh my fucking God, my heart is still working. I know tons of people that got to my age and they just pack it in and their fucking heart gives up. Mine, I never fucking paid for it. I never fucking got, but it's fucking working. Like I was gifted this as a kid and it's as a baby and it's fucking working. I'm so grateful for it, right? Like little stuff of like, I'm grateful you know, I, I got this fucking incredible view. Like I've got this penthouse and service, 71 levels up. But I just got, I just sit there and look at the view of like, oh my God, that really feel it and, and do it. But you can just do simple 
shit, I'm grateful for having a, that cup of coffee I had this morning, that first taste and that the beans and the smell. And it's like little shit, practicing that muscle of gratitude and just doing it for like that, fuck, five, 10 minutes, like that what recharges you. That what gives you the fucking energy. And just the thing of, and this is the other important thing. Don't do today what you can't recover from tomorrow. This took me a while to sort of learn this, but don't like, you know, you're working on something, push yourself till fucking two in the morning. And then tomorrow, you know, you wake up and you're fucking cooked and then you think, and then you like, it's those bad habit loop. Oh, I gotta have more caffeine. I gotta have more thing. I gotta have more junk food. I gotta, you know, I'm not gonna work out. I'm not gonna like, don't do today what you can't recover from tomorrow. It's like that thing is like work to that time. But my thing is when I hit it, you know, with the whoop, when I hit that time, you know, it's fucking out, it's thing. And then I just get up the next day and and sort of keep that that balance sort of in, in motion. And sometimes, look, there are exceptions. You can get really excited about something. You can be like dig down the rabbit hole and it feels effortless, like in that flow, let it ride. But it is the thing of like you've sort of got to still make sure you can recover from it to do the next day because that's that thing is like when you just overstretch it and you do it and then you, that's when it, like, because when you're really fucking tired, you will never fucking do that meditate. Like, you will instantly get drawn to what's easy, which is picking up the phone and scrolling through fucking TikTok or something, right? Because that is just the fucking easy go-to gateway drug for the low-hit dopamine, where it's like, the other thing is after it, you always feel like, oh, my God, you know, meditation, gratitude practice, you feel like, I've never finished it on, fuck, that was a waste of 10 minutes. I've always gone like, holy shit, I need to do that more. Oh, my God. Like, I can't believe I was going to skip that or I was going to miss it and fuck around on TikTok. Or, and it's just the thing is, you know, we all, like, check that screen time. Oh, my God, it's crazy just how addictive these fucking things are. But it's the thing is that thing just zapped your energy, though. That's That's the thing. When you talk about energy management, like... I guarantee that's going to be the, the, if you could control that, that's that's where probably 80% of fucking of that energy is getting waste. And you can, and if you can really control that, it's like, I always feel it's like, it's like you were driving around with the fucking brake on. Once you release that, it's like, oh, it's fucking go. Yeah. Anyway. Thank you so much, Simon. I really appreciate it. I love how like passionate you are. I'm so grateful for your time today. You're like a purebred entrepreneur. You gave so much just raw advice. Um, and I'm so grateful to have you on today. Um, I know we went on over time, so I'm thankful that we did. Um, and I just love your vision. You have this beautiful goal and you truly want to help people. And I could just feel that through the screen. And I know that you really want to just give value. And that's what you're doing through content. You want to help that next generation. And I could so feel that. And I'm grateful for you. Awesome. You got this awesome domain. How much did you pay for that? Studying.com. I bought it for 28,000 US dollars. No, that's pretty good. How long ago was that? Bought it two, three years ago. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I got really lucky. I, I think, I feel like it's a good goal, like price. What's your thoughts? Is that cheap, expensive? Oh, yeah, it's, it's a good investment, 100%. Like it's always the thing, if you're ever coming to sell it, like the business, this is why these people argue. I'm like, 
dude, you understand how much more money you'll get if you had that domain rather than not. Like you probably wouldn't lose 10 fucking million off the price. You know, it's like, and that's the thing is if you build a big business and someone else is sitting on, they have you by the fucking balls. Like you're going to have to pay the most stupid um, amounts. And I've seen that. So no, but it's, it's great. I definitely feel like, you know, this is the whole thing. The education system is, is, you know, is, is in that mass disruption as we've seen across media, across everything. But it's like, yeah, it's, it's definitely as you can unpack those, those sort of lessons and get them in, uh, in, in real time, because it is changing so much. I always, even when I was at uni, like, it, it never made it like this Walmart case study on like 10% margin or something. Like when I was at the markets at the self and I was doing, I was at uni, you know, on the weekend, I was so much running my own business. I'm like, no, oh, this doesn't make sense. Like how this would be relevant. Like it's impossible. Like, or say for me at the markets, like I was just like, there's no way you could fucking make 10% margin work, but it is the thing. It's just different. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And I think, when you brought that up, I think the next chapter is like just teaching people how to learn, teaching people how to study. How do I leverage AI to teach me things? Because now I'm like, I don't need a coach. I don't need to teach. I don't need to learn. I just use AI and I'm learning how to ask. I'm learning how to learn from it. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's why I wrote like, he who writes the best prompt wins. It's this... Yes. It's this thing though of like everyone when they go to chat GPT, right? The first time is like, they do this mind blank, what's the fucking question? And yeah. it's this, you know, Einstein said to go to that higher level, to solve the higher level problem, you need the higher level thinking. It's like, you need to actually, you know, I, what's the word, metacognition or something, but it's like that next level up. And it's like, a lot of people are scared to go there, but it's like, that's actually... The, the next thing now it's not like the same way we used to think with a you know caveman with a wooden pick and whoever did that was the best it's like no no it's not that now it's not who can type or who can do the thing or who can it's who can actually ask the best fucking question and it's like you it's just like it's fucking scary <laughs> like now i want to go to chat gpd and literally ask it teach me how to come up with better prompts to utilize you better like, it's like asking the question for the question. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Simon. Simon, where can people find more about you, your content? No, yeah, just, well, I've just, uh, you know, I'm just on Instagram and LinkedIn and stuff and posting, but also, um, you know, and there'll be a ton more content I'm putting in one life, just getting it all sort of sorted, but to um, really dive deeper on those specific skills. but. You know, thanks for listening out there and I hope to be in contact and see you win in the arena. Thank you so much, Simon. We'll link your Instagram. I know you have Instagram. You've been dropping a lot of valuable content on YouTube. So we'll drop your YouTube in the description. We'll drop One Life Club. And if there's any other things, you could just let me know after and we'll put it in the show notes below as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Simon. I really appreciate it. Guys, if you made it this far, I really am grateful for your time. Hopefully you guys got value from today's episode and I'll see you guys next week with another episode. Peace.